Hello! <laughs> and welcome to another episode of the Nostalgia Podcast. A podcast where we discuss the retelling or continuation of pop culture favorites as seen through a queer and feminist lens. My name is Eric Lefebri. And I am Jessica Tercero. And this week, we're joined by... I'm Alex, and I'm neither of those things. <laughs> you're, you're neither Eric nor Jessica? <laughs> yes, exactly. I'm Alex. <laughs> oh, Lord. Welcome to okay. the party. So, tell us about yourself. I am a musician. I play in the Bay Area band Sarcasm. Um, back in my youth, I used to do a lot of theater, so... The movies Wait, really? that we're talking about are very close to me. I was in a production of Annie once. <gasps> so How did you I play? not know this? I hide it a lot. <laughs> oh, my God. And you decided to air so this sick. out on our play? podcast. Oh, my God. This is so, so good. That's about it. Music is the main <laughs> denominator that I use for everything. And that's how we know you, too. So that yeah, makes sense. I yeah. know Jessica and Eric through playing with... Danger Inc. and Sad Girls Club and Lousy Advice. Woo woo woo! And uh, I, it's so nice because thinking back to playing Sacramento shows five years ago when we knew nobody but hardcore bands, and it was just so awful. <laughs> and so I think I think we played one show in eight years, and then we've played like seven in the last like year, which is much better. Yeah. Hardcore is still like alive and well in Sacramento. I don't oh know, yeah, I don't know it's, where or how or, but it's here. And it's a lot of the same bands. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I name I them. Always... Name them on the pod. <laughs> no, <I'm just> <laughs> uh, I will. Call I'll say uh, the the main band that we played with was a band called Ease, which does not exist anymore. And what an easy way. To, uh, so we watched Annie. We didn't say what we watched, but we all watched Hell Annie. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We watched Annie. We watched, okay, so motherfuckers, Annie has had many different forms. It's been in film like six times. So it was like in the 30s, there was two Annie films. Before that, it was a comic where Annie was a detective that would go and like, bust Nazi conspiracies and shit. Like, she was yeah. like a Dick Tracy, Nancy Drew person, which is awesome. And then 1970s, it was turned into another musical and brought to Broadway. And then there was this one. And then there was like four more after this or something. I don't know. Everybody yeah. just wants to remake the same thing. So <laughs> Annie has a lot of bullshit. But we anyway, so we watched the 1982 one and the 2014 one. Boy, um, did we. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, we did. Annie Annie was such a... Not only was I, like, in it... And, like, my thing that I used to do, like, I was in serious um, or, like, non-musical plays. And then I would, I would do musicals, but I also liked helping out just with the tech sort of stuff. So I always did, like, kind of bit parts. So I got to watch a lot of it kind of come together from everything. And just all those songs are so ingrained. And watching the... 1980s one over and over and over again during that time and it's just Annie just has been this constant fact like oh another embarrassing thing I uh, <laughs> yes. in like elementary middle school I used to collect Pez dispensers before I played music or anything uh -huh. and was like hardcore into it and 
like the number one and the only one I ever spent like a hundred dollars on was like the Annie one. And it was just like, Annie was this just nightmare drilled into my head, but I love it a ton. And so it was really cool. To Do you still have it? One. I don't have it. I sold all my Pez in, in eighth grade, I think. Oh, damn. Got to capitalize uh, on that. I know. I don't miss it, but <laughs> I miss that one. The rest of them I don't. But so, yeah, this was revisiting that. And I had never seen the 2014 one until this week. So And you loved it? I really liked it for different <laughs> reasons. <laughs> Which we will get into in our next yeah. segment. <laughs> we have so much to talk about, y'all. Let's get into it. I know. It. We have so much to do. On the main streets of New York City during the Great Depression, class disparity and morale are at an all-time low. Annie, a young optimistic orphan, lives at an orphanage run by an abusive alcoholic named Miss Hannigan. One day, in an attempt to appear more likable with the general public, billionaire Oliver Warbucks and his assistant Grace Farrell go to the local orphanage to pick out a child he can house for a short time. Annie's charm and optimism ultimately sways the steel heart of Daddy Warbucks while he organizes a search for her parents with a handsome reward attached. Just as he is about to adopt her, Miss Hannigan and her cohorts devise a plan to pose as Annie's parents and take her away for the reward money. Annie catalyzes the New Deal, FDR sings a song, Annie is kidnapped but ultimately saved, there is some outrageously racist scoring and caricature, and there's a big party at the end, and the sun comes, comes out, out tomorrow. tomorrow. Okay, so I, I like you, Alex, loved this growing up, and I watched it quite a bit with my grandma. It was like this, the Secret Garden, all of the Shirley Temple films, and Heidi and shit, right? And I was like, yeah, this is great. And yeah, watching it now was uh, really timely because holy shit, um, Great Depression, y'all. What's up? Yeah. <laughs> Welcome back. I had no idea that it took place. Okay, I don't remember shit about this movie apparently because I was like, also like, wait, that happened? Wait, what's yeah. going on? Like, I didn't realize that Warbucks was like, oh. Because that's how he makes his money on war. <laughs> on like, war. you get it? And I yeah. was like, it was weird. <laughs> no, I I also, I've never seen either Annie. Like, because I was also in musical <gasps> theater like Alex, but I'd never seen Annie. I knew the story to some extent in the same way that, like, I'd never seen Cats, but I knew Memory. I'd never seen Annie, but I knew a couple of the songs from it, some of the iconic ones. I didn't really fully know the story apart from the fact that like a young poor orphan goes to live with a billionaire tycoon. So that whole time I was like, what is happening? And then as the story progressed, I was like, what is going? Yeah, it was just, it was wild. It <laughs> is still a cool story, but it definitely was interesting to watch because I had never experienced it before. <laughs> yeah, I remember first seeing this, not if I was in middle school, so I must have been like 10, 11-ish. And definitely, yeah, none of the, I guess, nuance of the jokes came <laughs> through. And, like, the just skating over, like, the Bolsheviks trying to murder this guy. And it's like, oh, yeah, that's that's just what happens. We never yep. talk about it. And we, no. we only see it in that one scene, too. It's just like, oh, there's a grenade. Uh, go ahead, do your thing, bodyguard. Like, you know, and I was like... What is happening? And he like dances it off. <laughs> yeah, and it's just so bizarre how all these pieces kind of come together. And like, 
<laughs> the big thing, like I, I was FDR in the Annie musical and <gasps> I forgot how much he was in this movie. I remember him only being in like two scenes in the movie and like just having like one line really. But it was very bizarre to see because like Jessica said, it's very timeless now in a way because it's coming back around but it's also yes so dated and still has some weird charm to it because there's not really a plot besides like <laughs> the kind of two big besides events tomorrow. that happen yeah <laughs> and like that's the big thing i came away from it from is like wow there's like one sort of subplot but Annie is really just, like, hanging around. And I think this is what you get into with, like, comics like Annie and things like Richie Rich and other things from that era or Little Lulu or um, Popeyes. There's really, like, one gag. And it's like this one. It's like, she's an orphan. Yeah. she yeah. hasn't experienced much. Now she does. Yeah. Well, and, like, so much of this, like, <laughs> even though it's called Annie, it's really about Daddy Warbucks. And, yeah. like, yeah. Annie herself exists as a character <clears throat> only to make other people better. So she is essentially, like, a moral compass and, like, leads all of the kids in the orphanage and is like, this is what we should do and this is how we should do this, right? And she's just wants to find her parents and all this other stuff. But, like, when she enters Daddy Warbucks's life, all of a sudden, oh, he has a conscience, even though he's, like, pissed off that he has to go to the movies. And I don't know, like, she doesn't really get to be a person in her own narrative. Like, it's just she's yeah. here. Okay, cool. Like, she exists so that way Warbucks can be redeemed is what that felt like. And so even at the end, he gets to save her with what? All of his wealth and all of his power. Like, this whole thing is just him showing her all of that and then her benefiting from that. It's like the the moral of the story feels like money will solve all of your problems and save you whenever you need it. Yeah. Also, he's... Okay, in the Great Depression, like, a dollar was a lot, right? I mean, like, just in the 30s in general. And he's like... He's a fucking billionaire He's in the 30s. Billionaire. Yeah. What the fuck? <laughs> yeah. And it's so wild, even like the scene where um, Grace where Grace Bell. shows up to the orphanage the first time, like you see the crowd of the poors like gathering around and like can barely even fathom the idea of wealth. And like the driver just like, I don't want to be touched, like all that stuff. You see, you're seeing this huge wealth disparity, but truly a dollar was so much at that time and just it's it is so bizarre just seeing that huge gap and i love annie's optimism throughout where she's just so unfazed by any of it like it's just yeah cool great you're rich that's cool anyways i'm gonna go over here now great and that was that was sweet because i like did a little bit of research on just annie as a character and i think initially her character within the comics was a lot more like i don't know the correct term for it a lot more right leaning in its politic just in the way she would deliver the idea of what government should do. She was very much like, I don't want handouts and everyone should pull themselves up by their bootstraps. And no, and like we all, the reason which rich people are rich are the, it's because they worked hard for it essentially. Right. Like that was a lot of what her character existed at in the time frame of the comics. So like seeing a more socialist leaning, empathetic version of who that character was in what became the stage play or the the musical and then what became the movie musical is interesting. At least I thought it was cool. 
you know. Yeah, I didn't realize that she used to she was so right leaning. I mean, it's weird because she like the way that the character is written in this, she kind of is like, I want to earn my keep, right? She has that line when she first gets to the Warbucks mansion and they're like, oh, sweetie, like, whatever, it's fine. My whole job is to make the bed. (laughs) Yeah. You know? And she's like laughed off is like, because, you know, there is that whole interaction where it's like the butler is like, I'm not allergic to dogs. I'm allergic to filth. And I was like, what the fuck is all this? And then, like, they were laughing at her when they took her sweater. And she's like, am I going to get that back? And they were like, oh, my God, you poor thing. Like, You poor thing. Emphasis on the word poor. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. For real. I'm allergic to filth. Like, ooh. Yeah. But, like, they were trying to say, like, even when, like, 836 couples came to uh like say i'm annie's mom and dad and uh miss farrell grace was like uh, there's just so many dishonest people she's like no they're not dishonest they're desperate like annie was calling that out annie is like so young but also so aware of the disparity yeah. and she even when she's like <clears throat> talking to fdr and everything she's like cool yeah let's do this let's give them jobs let's do this let's earn this but like yeah it was it was really interesting that she wasn't just because this movie fucking hates Republicans, which I was all about. <laughs> oh, yeah. I did not remember it being so like, ugh, Republicans this or ugh, Democrats this. And I was like, wow, oh, my God, what am I watching? <laughs> <laughs> it was wild. I did love those bits. Um, I do want to talk about Bernadette Peters and Tim Curry as the general queer canon <gasps> of the film. Yes. Because I had no idea either one of them was in this movie. I was so surprised. I was so surprised to see Tim Curry. And I was like, oh, he was he's just lovely with his pencil thin mustache. Oh, my God. It was perfect. And Bernadette Peters. She's so she's iconic. Amazing. So good. Like them together. That whole scene where they're like concocting the plan and like they're dancing up and down the stairs. And like it's like essentially just like a slapstick ballet, which I was so into (laughs) because it's like gaggery after gaggery but they're like doing these perfect synchronized movements like ducking and like smacking and like slipping and uh it was great i like that that whole sequence was so good so i guess the whole reason that tim curry did like said he wanted to be in this was because he had like a super militant father who was like an Ooh. admiral or something in the military and he wasn't allowed to watch anything except musicals so he's like yeah i want to be an annie like that was his thing. Like so, I but, love like, that he wasn't allowed to watch anything except for fucking musicals and stuff like that. And then he just goes off and has Tim Curry's career. Like what a badass! Yeah. Also, what a bizarre punishment for a father to be like the only media you'll consume is musicals. <laughs> like, okay, <laughs> like go off. I guess like that's fine. <laughs> for sure. For sure. Yeah. Um. Okay, I want to talk about. Annie and how she like her whole life is based off of like that that locket and that like letter that like <clears throat> will be back for you and like promising that like hey we're gonna we're coming back we're doing this and she essentially stalls her life for that and uh she always like she has this moral compass like I wouldn't do anything a decent person would have done and stuff like that and I feel like a big reason that she has that motivation is because she's like oh well my parents are decent people they're gonna come back for me because of this letter right but then that letter ultimately is what holds her back from being who she is and what she needs to be and what she wants to be and how damaging like false promises are and like how 
people are so drawn to like the idea of blood and not found families like even back then obviously and how damaging that can even be like when you can't recognize the relationships that you have right in front of you because you're holding on to something that maybe isn't there maybe never was there yeah i i was really surprised with the biggest detail that i had forgotten was mrs hannigan very quickly glossing over the plot detail of her parents dying and I don't think I'd even registered that originally. And it's so bizarre, not only that Annie is so stalled by it, but Mrs. Hannigan, who, you know, deep down, maybe this really nice person, but her goal seems to be to remove the joy from these kids and make them as kind of drone like as possible. And yet she holds on to that one thing that could make Annie just crushed and just be totally just kind of belligerent which is saying like they're not coming back this is why but yeah I Annie, thought of that. Wow. yeah and it's it's weird because the only time you see mrs hannigan at least in the 1982 one have any sort of emotion is defending annie from rooster which is just you know purely to stop murder as a very bad crime <laughs> <laughs> not not like, like it's like oh we were gonna extort this poor child and send her to die somewhere else but m- direct murder no yeah she's uh, fine like beating the shit out of kids she is fine like gaslighting them she is yeah. fine at, like verbally abusing them but oh wait you're gonna do a murder no 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 we don't do that we just like like to play psychological games exactly. not like <laughs> and and yeah it's weird that yeah annie she's so hyper stalled by this and it, it's interesting how she seems to be giving all of her kind of energy and hope because she feels like oh i'm set i don't need to think about what's around me she's become this weird like motivator for the other orphans as well it kind of also goes back to what we we're talking about about like her being the character that daddy warbucks builds off of is like the other orphans build off her too and kind of suck the energy out of her i guess in that same way miss hannigan does too right because if she had crushed annie she knows that she's the morale of the of the orphanage and she needs that conflict just Mm. like she needs to be horny for everybody right (laughs) like (laughs) she she fucking needs her like programs or whatever but like um her character thrives on conflict, right? Yeah. Um, and without that, like, remnant of hope, I guess. Yeah, I didn't think about any of that. But, like, yeah, she she wouldn't have any conflict. And then she would have already, like, crushed those girls. And she needs that conflict, right? Because that's what's comfortable and that's what's known. I want to argue something, not necessarily the opposite, but just, like, a counter perspective. Only because... I forget what song it was, but it's a song where she's like drinking and going to room to room, which again, most of her character in this movie, but she's like, she's <laughs> bathing in vodka. <laughs> yeah. She's not, she's not just complaining about the kids, but she's kind of complaining about her life. Like, like, how did I end up here? How is this my life? I could have been so many other things. I could have done so much more. What has my life become? Part of me thinks that she doesn't have the emotional capacity to, when given the information that Annie's parents were dead, to deliver that news in any sort of productive way, even though she is this mean, resentful, very bitter person towards these kids. Part of me wonders if like she didn't 
choose to give that news because she didn't know how because of possibly maybe stilted adolescence of some kind where like she doesn't really know how to deal with conflict herself. So how can she deal with delivering this kind of conflict in that way? So I don't know. That sort of bled into my thought process a little bit with her. Even though she is mean and vindictive, there are these sort of airs of, I mean, I hate to say misunderstanding because she's just an asshole, but. (laughs) Well, I think more than anything, she's a victim of uh, cyclical abuse, right? Because we also see that because they make a point to say that Rooster, Tim Curry, right, is her brother and they're both the same. They're both kind of skeezy. They're both trying to make a dollar however they can, the whole thing. But I think that they they both are just like they're they're scheming on each other and they just kind of expect that. So, um, yeah, I think maybe like this is uh, she's just a victim of cyclical abuse um, and she obviously doesn't have any sort of support system or anything. Um, And her way of dealing with that, especially in like, you know, because she's obviously very poor and stuff like that, is by just trying to fuck everybody, like using her, um, she exploits the children and also her sexuality to survive and to get what she needs and what she wants. That's apparent with her, again, trying to fuck everybody and like trying to fuck the cop, right? Who's just like totally like we're I'm not even going to go into that because that's nuts. But like when Daddy Warbucks goes and he's just like, oh, I want to sign these papers. I want Annie. And she's like, no, you don't. No, you don't. No, you don't. And he like has to say like, oh, you know, they're going to find somebody else for this orphanage or like they have to threaten her job to be like, oh, no, 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 no. It's OK. It's OK. You can you can take whatever you, you can take Annie. That's fine. But like I, I think actually thinking about it, yeah. both Grace and Warbucks both say like, hey, I'm going to take your fucking job if you don't give me what I want, because without her job, I, she would be on the street like everybody else. I think that dips into the conversation about class then. Right. Because there's this conversation about working class being like, you're disposable, you can be replaced. So that's like incentivized threat towards the working class to say like, you will lose your job, you'll be replaced and you won't find a new one. Whereas these this literal billionaire, these like people who don't think about money as any sort of real factual commodity or something that is of risk to them, just kind of being like, yeah, it doesn't matter, obviously. But this person who's obviously struggling, obviously an addict, obviously poor and broken and and just completely desolate in this moment of a job she hates. It's a job she fucking hates. She hates being there. It Nothing about the environment she's in, she enjoys. She has a whole song about it, right? Yeah, little um, girl. But even on, on <laughs> right? Even, even in the moment of where that job is about to not exist for her, she can't lose that because she's so poor and she's so, she has no other option, you know? It's really interesting because like, now that we're talking about this, it's like the there's so many more poor people in this film and we get such a better picture of that having to do things that you don't want to do in order to survive and things like that and then we also see annie who's like the we're poor but we're doing the right thing because that's just what we do that's just the right thing to do i'm gonna save this dog i'm gonna do this right um which is really sweet but then yeah we have like that like that contrast with miss hannigan and her her brother but then, like, the rich people are only doing good to be seen, and mm-hmm. they, like, they also don't need to pay attention to things, and they don't notice things or the impact that they have, because that doesn't directly affect their everyday life. Yeah, it is an interesting take on just performative empathy or performative performative goodness. 
I think that goes into like even Annie exhibits it at times. Like she has an entire song about the dog being, you know, this dumb dog <laughs> and is kind of like, why are you following me around? I don't need you. And then the moment it's about to be taken away, she's like, no, it's my dog. But it, it's like such a weird character shift that you it, it feels like she doesn't even think about it until there's like other people there. And suddenly she's like, oh, God, what do I? Ah. And then she's totally fine with it suddenly. Yeah, and yeah. that also kind of plays into when she has Warbucks, right? And she's like, well, I want to find my parents. And then, like, I want to shout out because I thought this was, like, the best fucking thing about Warbucks was when he's, like, kind of, like, popping the question to her, do you want to be my daughter? And she's like, no, I want to find my parents, right? And then rather than being like, well, I already signed the papers and all that other stuff, he was like, okay. I'm going to help you do that. I understand. And we don't usually get that in like the 80s and the early 80s. So that kind of took me off guard. But yeah, so when she is like, I want to find my parents, she finds her parents. And in that moment when she like looks over and she's like, oh, okay. Like she takes a deep breath and she's like, all right, fine. And then she leaves. But she realizes in that moment that what she wanted was she had all along. You know, mm-hmm. like she was searching for for something like she didn't understand what she had until it was almost gone or taken away. So like you were saying with like Sandy, right? Like she was like, dumb dog, I don't need you. I don't need all this stuff. And then like when the guy is going to take her, she's like, oh, no, 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 This is not going to happen. I need this dog. Exactly. And, and like you see that an even further extent with Miss Handigan and Rooster at the very end of like the moment when Annie is about to be removed completely from Earth and a plane of existence, you see her kind of have that compassion. And and it, it's it's hinted at because of her response with everything throughout the movie of her unwillingness to give up Annie without providing a real concrete reason. And then you sort of see that come about of, yeah, you, you don't know what you have until it's almost gone or gone. Every Almost every character learns that except Rooster, I think. Yeah, he's like the irredeemable one. <laughs> He's, like, the best kind of, like, NPC. <laughs> like, he's awful and horrible in the cutscenes, but, like, right after the kids break out of that, like, into the stairwell where they're at, and they have to funnel them back in, and he pushes one to the closet, and he she just grabs his glasses, and he's just like, oh, okay, and then just closes the door. <laughs> and is like, I guess those are gone now. Yeah. He doesn't try to do anything, and just is like, eh, whatever. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's good. I think that's a, the a great way, like great thing we kind of talked about. Of like, it's it's kind of like the film has like two definitions of rich, like monetarily rich, and then kind of like emotionally fulfilled richness that you only sort of realize once it's really displayed to you in full. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, truly. I mean, even just that scene right at the end when Annie's getting ready to leave with her fake parents. And um, Daddy Warbucks is essentially like, here, take all these clothes, take all these dresses, take everything. She's like, I don't need it. But you know who does need it? All of my friends who are also poor. Like, you see this moment. She's like literally seeing richness. She's seeing this monetary wealth. She's seeing these physical things that make up the wealth that we see that Warbucks has. And she's just dispersing that and saying, well, I don't need all this. I'll take this one maybe. But Denise would look great in this. Carrie would look great in this. She would be great. Like, you know what I mean? She's like thinking about others in this way. That is, you see that kindness. You you see 
her wealth of spirit, essentially, her wealth of kindness, as opposed to the wealth that Warbucks is seeing. And I think all these characters, like Warbucks, throughout the film, he's also seeing that within her, which is why he didn't like make a big deal about the signed papers thing. And in that moment, he's kind of like, okay, yeah, cool. Like, well, and she's also like super aware of like wealth and how people respond to that too. She's like, my parents, they don't have a lot of money and I, I don't want to take this stuff back because I don't want them to feel inadequate. Also, there's other people that need this more than I do, you know? So she, yeah. she's aware of how those things affect other people. Yeah. She has that level of empathy that, Everybody else, for the most part in this story, doesn't have, you know, I think the only other people in this who you could arguably say have that are a couple of her friends at the orphanage. Oh, and then um, what's her name? The secretary, Grace? <sighs> yes, the person who I had to look up her name before the same way. Her, so she's the only other person, I think, apart from Annie and the kids that you could argue has some sort of level of empathy because she generally feels like can discern between the goodness and the badness of everything, even though in these moments where like he's dictating like you need to do this and you need to do this. And she's like, yes, you can see kind of the sternness of her reaction to it, that this is just a job. But in those moments of softness and tenderness with Annie, um, you see her sort of respond and react in a way that is caring and understanding and, and compassionate that most Almost every other character does not have. Everyone is just selfish to a certain extent. Very singular minded in a nah, in a selfish way is what I wanted to say. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Truly. I mean, at least until the end, right? Because like Daddy yes. Warbucks goes from being, I am a businessman. I love money. I love power. I love capitalism. And yeah. orphans are only boys. I want a boy to being like. Let me be your daddy. Oh, you don't want me to be your daddy? Okay, I'll help you find your people. I'll I'll help them. Don't worry, I got you. And I know that generally the story, like at the end, there's like this general whimsical sense of inclusion. But why the fuck was Miss Hannigan at that party? <laughs> okay, and why the fuck was she like? Because I I saw her on the on the elephant and Punjab like and her looking at each other longingly, and it was like. This is the most stupid racist shit I have ever seen. Like, I know. It's what? so weird because you see in, we'll get to the 2014 <laughs> one later, but like in both <laughs> endings, the biggest problem I have is like Annie, you know, goes through all this. And then at the end, the movie, like the attitude of the movie is like, you know, fuck those other orphans, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> like, are they adopted by Oliver Warbucks? Because they're all there in better clothing. But do they just like go back to the orphanage after that? And then it's like, oh, remember that time when our friend got all that money for a week? Yeah, it was cool. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh my God. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Let's, while we're on the subject of fucking of the tokenization of people of color in this film, let's talk about. So there was. Punjab, who like was very like Middle Eastern mysticism, the whole thing. Which oh was, yeah, he was literally only there to entertain Annie and like the little girls that come to save Annie. They're like a person of color, faint, and I'm yeah. just like, why? And then <laughs> that- like, and I forget the other character's name, but it was something also just incredibly insensitive. And he did like his martial arts thing. Oh, and, and, uh, he taught like karate lessons. Yeah. So, <gasps> like, so what's also bizarre? So, if we're gonna just talk about Punjab by himself, the name—that's like calling somebody California. 
yes! Like, but but in a yes! way because Punjab is in a, a, a state. It's like a nation state. It's the name of a place. But yeah. we're getting so non-specific and sort of erasure about a, a a place of existence. Like they don't have a name. Just call them where they're from. It's fine. Like let's move on. Which is just like cool, 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 cool. Y'all. Then we got to love that really fun choice of composition whenever they would appear on screen. The music would change. Yeah. Gotta we, love it. Like even, <laughs> even in the We Got Annie song, the <laughs> motif shifts to like, you know, yep. what you what would probably in that like be labeled as like Oriental. Kind yeah. Of no. Like vibe. Because you have the like kind of xylophone lead of the like. Da, 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 kind of yeah. overtone and it's like they're so ambiguous like even with Punjab like there's like an overarching like you know Middle Eastern Indian kind of aspect but he's just kind of everything from that do you have like Asian and Punjab and, and I'm gonna quote Gandhi like okay yeah and he <laughs> Wait. he like sort of talks in like kind of a French accent at times and like just it's kind of they were just like, yeah, just he'll do magic. Yeah. Why include that? And then it's- and then yeah, to pair off people at the end, like so many movies do, right? But to pair off the the person of color with one of the worst people in the entire film who's probably gonna be abusive and be just a terrible, terrible person to this person. Like, so, like, I, I saw that and I was like, cool, they, she's finally gonna get dick. Like, cause she was just like, ugh, but it I was, hate it. It was all around fucked. And like, also just the fact that like, this actor is, uh, uh, he's just a black actor. You know what I mean? Like a black actor playing something else is sort of the ambiguity of generalized people of color. Like, yeah. oh, well, you don't look white, so you can play pretty much anything else as long as we throw an accent on you. And you're like, cool. So let's just erase every other existing person on this earth who's not white. That's sick. Like, let's do that, you know? Which is just silly. And like, I, it, it also just is so bizarre. Like, they not to say, like, take out all minorities from this movie but like neither one of those characters had anything to do here they were literally like there's just the scene where punjab is levitating the plane so he's like magic but we're not going to talk about that because he's other and he's magical he's from a magical place like cool we're just going to be racist western society viewing this sick got it and then the driver who like for no reason other than his appearance, we're adding the martial arts aspect and all this stuff. It's just like it's well, they so... were both like bodyguards, so they were protecting yes. a rich white man. Which, but is even that, like, even more fucked. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Because to me, I'm like, okay, well, there's there's something to be said about like class disparity tied to race and and sort of inequity and and systemic racism, right? Like you can you can have that conversation there, but even within it, like, I mean, obviously they're not going to get into that. Like that's not something that. I think any of them are willing to talk about in this, but like they have nothing to do. And then the moments where as a viewer, we see them doing something. It's something that is so incredibly insensitive and shitty and like the most tropic version of a racial stereotype with the backtrack to the action itself. Like fuck off. (laughs) Do you know when they're going to talk about that? They're going to talk about that tomorrow. Oh yeah, exactly. Okay. Speaking of tomorrow, um, I so I know the song. 
in general, and I th- I don't know if like this is the general whimsy of the song or the general like theme of the song. Is this song just about fucking false hope? I think it's supposed to be about hope, right? Because it comes out of like the whole like FDR's like we're going to start the National Park Service and we're going to give people jobs and we're going to create infrastructure and we're going to do this and we're going to do that. And yeah. we're like just if we just keep on doing it that the next day will be better. But yeah, I guess like I mean be- be- because part like, of me, I didn't, I never realized that the song was tied to a scene with literally FDR because I had no idea FDR was in this like story. But like the fact that they're there and she's like, you know what I do whenever I'm like sad? <laughs> I sing. And then they start, she starts singing. And then it's like, <laughs> essentially, they're like, how are we going to fix this? And this, the theme of the song just feels like tomorrow we'll fix it. We'll fix it. Tom-. It's like this sort of like oh, misguided yeah. mislead of like, don't worry about it now. Let's just be happy now. Let's not confront things that are bad now we'll worry about it tomorrow because tomorrow's a new day to worry about that tomorrow's a new day to fix tomorrow's a new day to be better so why do that now and so to see this young girl who again i'm not faulting annie in this at all but to see her then chorused by these rich politicians who are like yeah let's fix the poor people tomorrow let's do that to like let's not worry about it today why would we do anything for anybody else today i was like well, because they never actually establish it right they talk about it but they never fucking do it in the movie you're yeah. right and so for me i was like this is just a, the anthem of false hope situationally like seeing that song tied to that i was like this is all weird <laughs> i was so i was just really stuck on fdr talking about teaching annie how to use a wheelchair because it's like his own personal roller coaster. <laughs> um, I was just stuck on that for a hot minute. Woo, woo. So, <laughs> able bodied folks are wild. <laughs> um, Man, so- fucking, when I, God damn it, in the musical, <laughs> on the last night, the wheelchair like got stuck and like <sighs> took down part of the set with it. Oh, oh no! no to go on for like the last scene and it's it's definitely not a roller coaster it definitely is not (laughs) as exciting as it seems but (laughs) i wanted to say like tomorrow also for me not only is like this false hope thing but it's so like oh today already sucks but at least tomorrow there'll be this thing that i can sort of count on as like the weather and have such like a low hope expectation like not only like false hope but just be like tomorrow the sun will come out and i'll like that's as low that's of a it. bar as i am willing to set for myself yeah <laughs> like did it like yeah. now right yeah exactly like <laughs> oh just thinking about tomorrow and how it'll be just as shitty as every other day yeah <laughs> which i guess to a certain extent i will argue that like that's kind of beautiful in a way where you're like just you're you're grounded, you're self-centered. It feels very zen, very very present, right? Like, well tomorrow this thing will happen, I can count on that and I can focus on that. So, I think my only the only reason I'm like this is a false hope thing is because of situationally where it's tied. The song yeah. itself lyrically, I'm like, yeah, totally like I get that. And especially coming from somebody who comes from so so little right like annie who has nothing she's an orphan she's sat like to be like because in my head i thought this took place at the orphanage and she was like singing it out the window and it's just sort of like tomorrow's gonna be like tomorrow they'll come tomorrow i'll have a family tomorrow i'll have 
I'll have opportunity. Tomorrow's that thing. I was like, hell yeah. But the fact that she's singing it in the presidential, the Oval Office with FDR, I mean, like, tomorrow we're going to help the poors. I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> like, it just situationally, that changed the the uh, the effect of the song, I guess. <laughs> uh, yeah, 8,000%. Like, now yeah. that, like, because, yeah, I wasn't even, like, thinking about it being tied to the Oval Office and, like, that whole exchange because I was, like, I, I, like, was, like, writing down furiously, like, everything that they were saying because, like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, this is, like, this is right now Republicans versus Democrats. What is, this is yeah. what's happening, right? But, like, I'm also, like, the optimist, too. So I'm, like, tomorrow's going to be okay, and so, like, when she started singing that, I was like, yeah, change the subject. Change the subject and let's talk about something else. <laughs> like, yeah, it's okay. Yeah, yeah. It's going to be fine. Just you got to do it. Um, Just- but, yeah, like, for sure. False hope. Tomorrow. Tomorrow is going to be okay. Um, so um, I don't know if you guys know this, but John Houston was the director for this. And he did, like, a bunch of, like, other weird movies. He's, like, a rich white guy. Um, and he was chosen to, he was chosen to direct this because of how his similarities to Daddy Warbucks. Mm. So, cause they wanted it to be a little bit gritty and it resulted in the people that wrote the musical fucking hating it. And so how different is this from the musical? Cause I, I've never seen it. I've never been in it. I've never, uh, I do know in a lot of the musical productions, they do actually start with Annie singing tomorrow instead of maybe, out of the really? window oh. or, at le- or at least like as the musical starts she's singing it and then it transitions into you see her and she's singing maybe oh uh, and in that it has a lot more resonance um i think in the musical because like i've been doing i'm on this like conversion dollar thing and yeah so he was worth like 30 billion dollars in today's money and I think it's a little more downplayed in the musical. It's a little less like FDR owes him and is like indebted to him. It's more like FDR just like asking for like advice on ideas instead of like, I need you to build all these things. And I think he's a little more of a side character. The musical is definitely more like Annie and everyone else. Got it. That feels a little bit better. (laughs) Also, uh, Rooster, I just looked up, they would have been paid in the equivalent of $942,000. Ooh. For that, which is weird because they're like, we could buy buy her milk and a blanket. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> for nine hundred and forty-two thousand. But to to be fair, it is a blanket and milk from Goop. So oh, that's true. So it's true. Yeah, that that would be upwards of I think twenty-five k. Just <laughs> easy base level right there. Yeah. Um. Yo, did you see that? Like, this is the nineteen thirties, right? Where the fuck did that cell phone come from? In that car, that big giant like oh, purse-sized right. cell phone. Do you <sighs> did you catch that, Eric? I did now. Oh That's man, it the, was it's like Grace is using it in a that like chase scene, right? Yeah, yeah. It was <gasps> like I I was like, what the fuck? And it's like all caps, like, where did they get a cell phone? That's how um, rich he was though. He I, had a prototype five prototype. decades previous. <laughs> <laughs> he was um, set. He was the first one. There, was there, also- there were moments that I forgot it. I forgot that it was taking place at the early, like the first half of the century, as opposed to just in eighty two. 
A thousand percent, yeah. Yeah, because I think even the cityscape, there's just a shot of some buildings. I was like, that looks like 80s New York City. Yeah. And it's like, it's the 30s. And I'm like, oh. So this was filmed in New Jersey, and New Jersey's governor signed a law that allowed children to uh, in the cast to work at night because they weren't allowed to work. I think it was like past uh, 11.30 p.m., but for a lot of those night shots, they had to go all the way in. So Annie changed <laughs> child labor laws in New Jersey. Yay. Woo, Yay. go off. For Work sure. those kids to the bone. JK, LOL. Child labor laws are real. Y'all don't fuck with that. Um, <laughs> I just wanted to say how good some of the um, choreography was. It was like, great. I loved it. It was yeah. great. The hard knock life sequence, the every moment, like it was so good. Like them throwing plates at each other was perfect. The pillows were great. Like it was so rehearsed, so well produced. I was like, yes. I don't know. Cause like with a lot of these new musicals or like it's, it's the film remake of a musical, but like modern, like Les Mis or Cats or whatever. Mm-hmm. A lot of this shit, you can kind of tell, like they're just getting big name stars, not like theater kids or theater actors. And I feel like in this Annie, a lot of these kids, like they know how to fucking dance. They can somersault, they can flip, they can do like, just the talent was so sick. It was so good. Well, they they also like, because there's 12 kids that they're trying to coordinate this whole thing with. And like, if one of them fucks up or something, even if it's like the main person, like that just added to a little bit of the realness of that. Like it was just, oh, yeah. it was so much more charming because they, they missed a step or because like maybe they had to like pull their hair out of their face or something. But like it felt so much less produced is not the word. Um, I forget. Yeah. It just felt but, more organic. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently, I'm just reading into Eileen Quinn, the actor who played Annie. She has a band <gasps> called Eileen Quinn and the Leapin' Lizards. Ooh. I love that. And Go so off, Eileen released, Quinn. They've released two albums, one of as of November of last year. What? Really? Wow, so yeah. it's a current thing. Okay, I'm going to look this up. I bet they're exciting. rockabilly. I bet. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. You guys, okay, when you were watching the whole, like, let's go to the movies sequence, right? Before the movie even starts, there's, like, 50 dancers and the whole thing. Were you guys also watching that and, like, oh, this is what the Academy Awards still thinks it is? Like, this is this is what oh, it, yeah. like... Yeah. <laughs> It's like, it's a lot of that sort of inside self congratulatory New York shit. Yeah, like not to knock that, but like a lot of New York folks and people like just the idea of New York is so like I'm from New York and this is New York. Anyways, you know this is New York. You're like, yeah, I know. Like, I get it. Great. <laughs> they got the fucking Rockettes to do the pre sequence to a movie, which makes sense because he's a billionaire. So I'm like, oh yeah, it just adds to the effect of that. But. Wait, did you um, did you actually know that they were rockabilly, or was that just a guess? That was a full guess. You're right, one hundred percent. Okay, so here's the thing: you can't have a name like first name and the something somethings. You're right. Without it being like rock and roll, and oftentimes with big boomer energy and rock and roll, it's gonna be something rockabilly adjacent. Whether it's Chris Isaac rockabilly or like. Fucking Stray Cats Rocket. It's going to be one of those. They're going to fall into one of the camps. And either way, they're all going to be on the same bill. So we're going to have a great time. But good for her. (laughs) (laughs) 
In present-day New York City, Annie, an optimistic foster kid, hopes to one day reunite with her parents after being abandoned some years before. One day, Will Stacks, a billionaire phone entrepreneur with political aspirations, saves Annie from getting hit by a van. A video circulates online, and his campaign decides to use Annie as a prop to make Stacks more likable to positively influence his political career. Stacks' assistant, Grace Farrell, fetches Annie from her foster mom, Miss Hannigan, and is whisked away into a gallant New York apartment. Enraged by the newfound fame young Annie is getting and in an attempt to further capitalize on positive political optics of their new arrangement, Stax's campaign strategist Guy and Miss Hannigan devise a plan to fake a reunion of Annie and her parents. The plan fails, Annie is saved, and after several terrible musical moments, Annie's hard knock life is over and the sun comes sun out comes out tomorrow. tomorrow. <laughs> um, this movie was... Um, I really wanted to like it because I was like, cool, a new take, cool, more inclusivity, cool, all this other stuff. But, um, <laughs> half the movie. Yeah. I mean, it was not good. <laughs> I do, I will say fully, I do love Quivenjane Wallace. Her performance is great. I did love her. And I love, oh my God. Rose Byrne, give that woman an award. God damn it. She's so good. I love her so much. She was Grace. She, to me, I don't know. I feel like she does so well with any sort of genre. She's great in comedy. She's great in drama. She's great in musical comedy. She's great in musical. I don't know if I'd ever seen her in anything, but I mean, she was good in this. This was like, this felt like watered down Disney TV Annie. To me, like it was significantly less gritty, which is good and stuff, but it, it just felt it felt more like polished and more safe. Like it felt this more like de- that's why I'm like, this is more Disney. Yeah, it's decom Annie for sure. Yeah. Uh, OK, can we can we start with my biggest problem? How they made Annie's whole character struggle be that she can't read but she starts off the film by reading the note that her parents gave her. Mm. Um, I understand that they wanted to talk about literacy and they wanted to talk about things like how the foster care system is broken and how maybe as like a person of color, it's harder like to get better schooling or what whatever they were trying to say, they did not say it well. And to make her whole like, fit about like not being able to read it felt like they didn't set it up at all like even though they like okay cool instead of doing an essay i did this look now we're gonna clap our hands and now we're gonna do this and then like well i can't read i don't know they they did not set it up well and it yeah i think you're you're super on it um every idea that had anything to do with something that was compelling in a sort of socio echo like some some something that like when we're talking about personal struggle any one of those moments fell flat so hard like it just felt so like what like really like that opening scene where she's like now you guys like like you said you guys clap and you guys are like the rich and then everyone be like wow i'm hungry and but that's my essay fdr and we're like what is, what is happening yeah. like it felt so underbaked even just structurally and narratively it was not good yeah it didn't work the writing wasn't great either like 
Some of the these actors really had to were not great. And a lot of it like felt like, oh, we could do this. Like, this is what we're going to do. Like some of the jokes they tried to say, like, oh, fuck, what was it? When they're trying to figure out what to name the dog. And they were like, we should name it hurricane after Hurricane Sandy. And she's like, Sandy. I was like, what the fuck are you doing? Like, that's your I thing? Know. That's your thing? And then they, they're like, oh, Miss Hannigan was just like a washed up person that was part of the CNC music factory. And <laughs> then she was also a groupie for this band yeah. that nobody knows. And then, oh, yeah, also like, and it starts off with like the redheaded girl, like, you know, reading her essay and stuff like that. And they're like, hot, like, there's so many moments where it's like, Annie sucks. Like the like it's like they're throwing mad shade on the original Annie, which like okay, whatever, that's fine. But it felt like the film yeah. was written around those bad jokes and those like like oh, wouldn't this be cool? Wouldn't this be cool? <laughs> that's great. Okay, I I wanted to like it. I really did. But like well, the only thing about this that I like fully liked and appreciated was the blind casting. I thought that that was great. Like, yes, let's have a story that's inclusive. Let's not like, it's not a, it's, it's not a conversation. Like this is the black Annie. It's just a new version of Annie with a blank. Like, but write a better story. Yeah. Yeah. I think the issue you have, especially is like, they tried to downplay it as a musical a little bit and remove the musical aspects a bit, but then you're left with not much of a plot really. And I think you have the same issues that you had in the last one. But at this point, like, they try to subsidize it. Like, in the 1982, you have Mr. Bundles, the laundry guy. But then you have Lou, who is, like, like Mr. Bundles, but the entire movie he's there. But he doesn't serve any purpose besides to be, like, the one person that Miss Hannigan, like, isn't interested in, but, you know he's the nice guy and blah, blah, blah. And it's just like, everything's kind of like that one liner gag that just keeps being repeated. And, you know, he's like, do you want to make a key? I don't actually know how to make keys. Oh, I knew this kind of hell. You know, I knew this helicopter because I read it right there. Uh, let's yeah. change the dates on that on that uh, milk and that orange juice. It's fine, right? Yeah. And then um, also cell phones. Like they they know everything about. They make him this conspiracy theorist, and then they like fucking it's like validate the, him. The people like, that think five G is like the coronavirus cause. <laughs> <laughs> Word up. But I think I think yeah, uh. I really agree that it it fell really flat. And like I messaged Jessica like right when he spat the potatoes back in that guy's face and i was like this is great this is really funny and then it went way downhill after that yeah it Um, really did but yeah it's just everyone is so one-dimensional if he's a germaphobe that's all he is but then he just kind of gets over it randomly even though it's something he's clearly been his whole life he's just suddenly okay with like eating disgusting food and like the changes are just weird and then you still have like vague semblances of every character like you have nash his driver acting the same way as punjab kind of in like he's just like the kind of stereotypical like sassy guy yeah and that's it and that's his character trait like that's it yeah this this whole thing i was just like it felt like it was trying to be like here, it's Annie, the modern day, but, like, they didn't really give a lot of thought into it. It's, like, it was just, like, comparison. So, like, 
okay, this is what this person would look like today. Yeah. So everything is about celebrity and everything. So we're going to use social media and we're going to use cell phones as a, as a, you know, like also look at, there's a cell phone tower in the Statue of Liberty. Why did we need to see the fucking, why did we need to see that? And like there's, uh, uh, it, it was, it was really frustrating how they did that. And then like, cool, we had this like New York apartment, right? And it just has a lot of TVs. Like there's there's yeah. a bunch of TVs in the room. Like so yeah. it looks like you're in space. Okay. <laughs> and it's like he he's definitely rich, but I think part of the charm of Warbucks is he is so exceedingly rich, especially like in the sense of what Annie's seeing. It's just mind blowing, like all the servants. And then you see stacks and he's like a rich like that's a very nice apartment but it's still like a new york apartment yeah and it's still like there's a lot more of people like him he seems less unique and then the fact that you remove every character around him besides grace you just have like where's the likability suddenly yeah and like his his whole struggle in this one wasn't like because the other war like the other warbeck's character was surrounded by people and always making decisions and always doing all this stuff right and he's just kind of like afraid of people but more specifically he's afraid of poor people is how i read it because like Mm -hmm. when he's like helping to feed people he spits the fucking mashed potatoes who spits out mashed potatoes mashed potatoes are delicious it's not that bad i didn't get if it was because it tasted awful or if it was like a germaphobe thing but like they were just cooked like you could be bland but not like bad yeah well and then like so while he's in the car he's like he's got all the hand sanitizer and stuff or like when somebody comes up to the window even though they're on the other side he's trying to clean it like so i felt like there was a correlation between poor people and filth that sort of thing so anytime he's around that and then like lou comes up and miss hannigan and he's like no thank you i do not like so they made the joke about them being prostitutes right and i was just like okay, like, this whole thing is, and he's, I gotta feed hobos? I was like, how, how? I don't, I can't right now. And you see that kind of when uh, Annie makes the food, you know, with no culinary idea what she's doing, and just kind of throwing, like, she throws, it was like a steak, half a pomegranate, (laughs) and like three other things, and and just cooks it all. And like, he spits it out, and then you kind of see his opinion slowly change in that moment of her a little bit. And it's kind of like what you were saying of like, he cleans it all because he's afraid of like poorness and he spits it out because it's related to that. And then he sort of like with Annie in that moment spits it out. Cause it's like, Oh, gross. Not only is it disgusting, but like it's made by, this person he's not really close to, but then he gets more attached to her in that moment and eats it again. Yeah. Even though it's disgusting and knows that and then just spits it out again. But he like he loses that concept for like half a minute. Mm-hmm. Well, I feel like that in that moment, they were trying to do that rapid growth thing where you're not seeing a sort of gradual growth of a character or like you're not seeing sort of a more empathetic version of this character as we continue. Except in this one moment, it's like, cool, here's the empath- here's the growth scene. Just he cooks. Oh, and now they're friends. And now he wants to adopt her the next day. And you're like, no, that <laughs> doesn't. It doesn't happen that f- it doesn't happen like that, y'all. Yeah, yeah, and I I feel like he didn't earn his growth, and they didn't earn the relationship that they tried to force. 
So, like, the next day almost, like, she's, like, at this dinner and sings this song, right? And then it's like, okay, cool, now read this. And then she, like, storms off. I was like, this, like, and he's trying to doctor and stuff. I was like, this doesn't, like, none of this feels like it means anything because you didn't earn the emotional attachment. You didn't earn, you were trying to tell me how I should feel. You're not showing me how how the how these characters have grown. Yeah, no, I think I think that level of shallow development is so emblematic of something that is targeted for kids. Whereas the other Annie felt more like a movie and it's like whatever. This one felt like Jojo Siwa produced. You know what I mean? In yeah. a way that's just like so so simple and silly and like had no it felt like this movie had no substance. Well, and again, you had like the character of Annie, their whole motivation is to make stacks grow. It's not to like her thing, even when she like finds her parents and is like taken to New Jersey and Brazil, <laughs> like she's off on her journey, right? <laughs> like, uh, like stacks knows a fucking scam. He knows a scam. What the fuck? Yeah. Um, but like, I, I don't know. It just, it all felt so, yeah, like really dull. I do want to bring something up that I don't know how possible this is, but when they're interviewing um, Stax about how he's running for office, he says, great is all I know, and that's what I want to do with the city. I want to make it great again. Oh, yeah, I caught that. Oh, I did not catch that. And so if we're looking at a timeline for when Trump announced his presidential bid, it was six months after this movie came out. And for a sucker who is obsessed with ego-driven media, like he loves to see himself on TV, loves to consume story and media and sort of that. I wonder if he saw this and was like, I want to be like Stax. Or his campaign manager who was actually in this movie. Like- oh, truly. <laughs> well, because so, I know, because I did a little research on just the phrasing of it, and I think that the phrase itself, like, make America great again, was a um, Reagan. It was used during the presidential bid for Reagan's campaign and then used again with Clinton's campaign in a smaller capacity. So it's something that's like been reiterated as a way, like let's take back whatever, like semantics and all that, but just its usage and it's sort of the way that it has gained so much popular traction in a big way. I'm like, well, that wasn't even a phrase that had been uttered probably for the last 15 years, assuming Bill Clinton was the last one to use it. Then almost verbatim, we're getting that from this billionaire New York mogul turned politician. And in that moment, he uses this phrase. I wonder if the Trump campaign or somebody within Trump's administration saw that and was essentially like, that's a good he's got a good point. Like he could run on that. That's a great slogan. You know, he is a businessman running for office. Truly. He's he's like a, a business New York like Trump is New York or was affiliated or that how he wanted to be seen in what the late seventies, eighties and nineties, right? That's where he was. So it just, it, it, it's hard for me not to compare the two. And the, just the fact that like, I mean, it's not fact, but like y'all are getting your shit from the new Annie go off. <laughs> <laughs> like if that isn't emblematic of exactly where these people's heads are at, then like fucking Girl, bye. (laughs) (laughs) Too much. Oh, it's too much. Um, But yeah, so that was terrible. (laughs) Yeah, that was real bad. Also, 
Speaking of terrible, it has nothing to do, again, with, I think, the content of the movie, apart from Cameron Diaz's performance was bad. Like, it was, it was horrible. not good. Yeah. It was categorically awful. Yeah. Like, first of all, like, she's a, she's a joke of a character, and yeah. she's also a joke of an actor in this film. I mean, yeah, and it's it's so bizarre to me because I'm like, if we're looking at this performance by itself, not comparing it to any other actor, this is like first night for an improv troupe's first performance. She's like, I'm going to act drunk and hate kids and like one take, go. And like, that's her performance. That's what I'm getting. It's like so unfleshed out. It's so fake. It's so fraudulent. It's so silly. But comparing something like that to like Carol Burnett of the last one, who is like, this queen of slapstick and and oh, comedy, this genius as far as like physicality and performance and stuff. And you're watching this person like pouring gin into the bathtub and just drinking and that whole, like it just, there was so much nuance, like artistic nuance in Carol Burnett's performance that was just obliterated by Cameron Diaz feeling like she didn't give a shit. Like, which was, I mean, again, not really expecting a whole lot, but I, I mean, I was hoping there'd be be a little better. <laughs> like, yeah, I think I think you have a lot of that with every, like, especially her portrayal of Miss Hannigan, where none of them. I don't know if it's just the the lack of a good character development in the script, but none of them, the characters seem committed to anything. No, because not only are they just kind of like you know we've been talking about one kind of general stereotype, like with her, it's just like I'm drunk and that's it, but. <laughs> they all give it up so quickly. Like with her, she sells out Annie and then is like, oh shit, that was bad. And instantly that's it. Her trait is gone. Yeah. And that happens with Guy, I guess his name was, the campaign manager. Mm-hmm. Like comparing him to Rooster, he is this terrible guy. But the moment Stax is like, you know, those aren't Annie's parents. We're going to go get them. He's like, oh, okay. I'll follow, even though I just got fired. I'm just going to kind of wander beyond. It's like, oh, there goes my plan, whatever. Who cares? And, like, Rooster was committed until the very end. Even Miss Hannigan, like like we talked about earlier, like, murder was what stopped her. With this one, it's, like, something that was just kind of, like, guilt, like, morally questionable. And I think this comes from the fact of, like, these characters don't have really intense opinions to begin with, because in the first one you see Warbucks have like the first thing you see of him is he gets a photo taken of him and he destroys that camera and shoves a guy and is like, Oh, oops, I'll buy a new one. But stacks like the first thing you see is he saves this kid and then becomes kind of a not great guy. But then it's kind of flip flops a lot. It's like, they can't make up their mind of like, who's actually bad who's good whereas the other one it's really defined even though they evolve well and a lot of that too is like the only reason that miss hannigan in this one started to feel bad was because annie said she had a good voice like it wasn't the character grew because of any sort of action or had any sort of moral compass it was that (laughs) she got validation from yeah she got like validation on her voice something that she felt wronged about by this kid and she's like oh well she likes me because it's not enough that lou likes her right and is like pining for her affections and who knows why because she's horrible to him right but like it's that oh 
somebody thinks that I'm okay. So, so that's okay. So I'm going to be nice because somebody was nice to me. <sighs> yeah, she she just she didn't earn any of that any yeah. of that growth. It's like she, she's owed it first. Yeah, it was it was all about her. Even what she did in the end wasn't about like not harming this kid. It was about her. CNC Music Factory, y'all. <laughs> oh my god. So, I will say that that joke was kind of funny only because they famously got caught for um, not singing their own music. Oh, I didn't right? know that. So historically, CNC Music Factory got caught because they put out this album. They didn't credit the singers and they claimed that they had sung these songs. Oh, shit. So she, in this narrative, is claiming that she's one of the singers who wasn't credited. So because oh. of that, I was kind of like, all right. That's kind of fun. Like, she she was the one who lost that on that bid, which I'm like, all right, like, I'll get that's that's cute. It was cute. It was cute. It wasn't great. It was cute. <laughs> you know. Uh, but and then but then the weird thing is like it removes the reasoning of why Carol Burnett's Miss Hannigan runs the orphanage is because she is like, you know, it's the 30s. It's right after the Great Depression. You know, all this is basically during the Great Depression, and that's her option. Whereas, you know, in 2014, Miss Hannigan, it's just like, oh, I get an extra 127 a month, which is like nothing, really. Yeah. Like that. Like I feel like you would do more, just like even like singing for tips weekly at like open mics. Like that's so little. Well, yeah. and I think that's part of the uh, social commentary that this film was trying to do. That where it just really didn't land. They're like, I get 157 or whatever the fucking amount a week for each one of you kids, and I don't need that, so you can get out of here and whatever. But like by trying to be like, oh, this is how foster kids are treated, or this is how this system works. It was more of just it, it fell flat again. Where that should like because they brought it up like several times without that throughout this movie they just wanted to like really bust that in there, but why there was no real like motivation for anyone in this movie it felt like, and you don't even see it redeemed is like with her there's no you know on the elephant ending scene with this big dance she just I don't think she's in the scene where they're opening the literacy uh, literacy literacy literacy. There we go. <laughs> Weird word to mess up on. The center for books. Uh, I think she's not even in that scene. She's in the parade um, and she's like oh, okay. singing at the end, I think. But everybody's also, just going like, back to, fuck? again, fuck those orphans. What are they going to do after they got books but nothing else? True. They got there cell phones go. now because their girl yeah. Annie hooked them up. <laughs> That's true. There's no way they're all living in that apartment, though. They're going to be no. YouTube stars now or Stax oh, they're, they're stars. Disco girls. <laughs> <laughs> oh, fuck. Um, Oh, uh, the part that I wanted to bring up, Eric, did you love how Stax kept referring to himself as Batman? Did you and Eric love that? <laughs> like, uh, oh my God. Truly, it's so boring. It is such a boring, like, I'm so misunderstood, you'll never know me. Well, tell me about it. I can't, and I won't. The you city know, like, needs me. Why does it need the you? The city, oh my God. Because I'm Shut Batman. up. <laughs> yeah, and then later he's like, did you see that? I'm Batman. I saved a little girl. Ha. And you're like, shut. Okay, cool. Great. <laughs> shut up. <laughs> you're not Batman. Nobody's Batman. You guys suck. Like, 
It's just such it's such a boring take. And I already did like this character was already super boring. Also, what was that fucking song when they're in the helicopter? Like just Stax and Annie? Oh, the one about the cell phone towers being hidden? Yeah. <laughs> that was so bad. <laughs> Every song was good... so forgettable. All yeah, all the songs were forgettable. All okay. I will say I want to see whatever fucking movie premiere they went to because if it is truly a Phil Lord, Chris Miller movie starring Rihanna, I'm fucking there. Did you guys notice that? It Yes. But also, how is that a premiere when there's three other films after that that all of those little girls have seen? True. Did you catch that? Yep. I was like, yeah. wait, why is this a why is this a premiere and why is this a badass party that I want to go to when all the other films are already out. Well, was it was it like it's like a book series? Uh, I don't and know. I like thought a, they were talking about know. like film how there's like four more books or four more, or four more yeah. films or something. I don't know. Whatever movie was that was wild. though, I was here for. I want to see I it so too. bad. It looks so silly and like ugh, yes. They ran out of and moon I tears. just I was so impressed with like Rihanna. Yes. Like <laughs> this is so dumb and I'm so yeah. on board for it. There was also a part right at the end, and I don't know why this was even there, but um, it's at the end, after the whole singing and dance number, everything's happy, yay, yay, yay. Bobby Moynihan is in a bar, and it cuts to him looking at a TV with his friend at some bar, and he says, he keeps singing and dancing like that, there's no way he was ever going to win. As a fun, casual nod to male or mask-presenting people doing something that is anything other than... So it's just some queer phobic shit where they're just like, oh, he's a man who's singing and dancing. What a gay, like, can't have that. And what a, and it's just, it was the, like, the most Gross. unnecessary line in the most unnecessary scene in the movie that was just like, hey, if you thought we were bad, let's throw in some queer phobia <laughs> too. Bam, we're out. Like, okay, Annie, what the fuck? <laughs> like, do you guys you also, know? yeah, like, I feel like nothing happened, but then there were those like moments where it's like, why are you turning this into a queer phobic thing? Why are you naming the dog after Hurricane Sandy? Like, why? <laughs> Which was just, <laughs> yeah, like it seems like it, it was it was one of those things. Like we we've discussed earlier with a lot of movies where they're trying so hard to call upon its predecessor. They're trying so hard to like do the sort of fun nerdy easter egg thing of like hey remember the first one when the dog's name was sandy well what else does new york and sandy have in common a hurricane let's drop that little thing in there and then like who thought that was funny who thought that that was a good joke why in the world would you name like oh maybe it's a new york thing maybe we just don't get it y'all i don't know you're from new york and you (laughs) thought that was funny um write in and let us know yeah at us and at this movie's twitter because it probably had a twitter <laughs> oh and then like the part where it's like Katy perry was like who is she like <laughs> on twitter and i was like what is yes happening? i hated like, that so who much is she? oh my god who is annie and like I, like again fucking annie just exists so fucking stacks warbucks dude can like have some sort of growth but then like his whole growth is he just wants more money and more power because he misses his daddy. Yeah. But like he doesn't have any connection with anybody from his family or anybody from 
that era, like, doesn't talk about his mom or any other family or, like, that was just so confusing. And he's like, I don't know why I want to be a politician just because I want my business to be a success. And also, you don't want to be around anybody and you don't trust anybody. So instead, what you do is you build a cell phone company where you literally track and hold everybody's data for 20 years so you can go back six years ago and try to find Andy's parents using that type of technology. Like, oh, it's okay. We got their locations. We got their conversations. We got this. So, like, I don't know, like, if it was trying to be like, yeah, data is great or, like, data is terrifying. Like, I don't, I don't know. (laughs) It didn't choose, like you said, it didn't choose a side, right? It was like, oh, you've been keeping all this stuff? And they're like, yeah. And then it's like, can you find my mom and dad? Yeah, we can. So it's like the good and the bad. So it's like, it's not trying to pick a side. But then what was bothering me a lot too with, I think the last one had it, the whole like handouts thing, the idea that like Stax is having this sort of monologous moment saying like, I am rich because I worked hard for it. Like, Everyone else just doesn't try hard enough. That's why they're poor and that's why they're not successful. And I was like, okay, that's not true. And go fuck yourself. And also, what does this have to do with why are you trying to teach this little girl that like, that's the way, that's not how it goes. Like, fuck off. Like, just bar none, fuck off. That's not how it goes. And then that tied with like the parents saying the same line of like, oh, we don't believe in handouts. We believe in hand ups. When he was like going to give them money. What is the narrative of this? Are you guys trying to paint like the villains as people who believe those things? Or is that sort of the ethos of the thing? Because if we go back to the idea that we're not getting any sort of concretely good or concretely bad characters in this, because there is that first scene too with Lou in the bodega when they're watching on TV, Stax is saying something along the lines of whatever, 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 politician, politician stuff. Cuts to Lou and Lou's like, politics are all liars, blah, blah, blah. In that moment, Annie's rewriting the date on the thing. And she's like, well, what did you want me to write? He's like, oh, just put two weeks on it. So you're comparing lies upon lies. So you're, 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 you're convoluting this idea of like, who is good? Who is bad? What is good? What is bad? But then with what we're supposed to assume are the bad characters, you're perpetuating this almost libertarian centrist leaning ethic, uh, politic. And that's kind of like, no handouts, please, and bootstrap this and whatever. And we're not even going to talk about systematic inequality. Like, wh- what? <laughs> like, like wh- in, who? <laughs> in the other one, they were talking about, like, okay, cool. Like, you know, there was a whole scene with FDR and stuff where it's like, okay, we're going to put America back to work. We're going to build this. We're going to do this. This is tomorrow. This is what we're looking for tomorrow. But then this one, he's not trying to do any of that. And there's never a point where he's like, I'm going to give back, you know, like, yeah, Yeah. I'm going to do this. Like, so there is no humanitarian element to this. We just see this man and his wealth and we see that he likes it and he's just going to keep it and uh, also keep all this fucking information. And we his his redeeming quality at the end is just like, uh, oh, you're mad because you think that I hired these people to get rid of you. Hey, hey, everybody, I'm not running for president or for whatever anymore. And you're like, that's supposed to be cool. Like, see, see, I did the thing. See, it's fine. Like, where, where's the distribution of wealth? Where is the talking about like why tomorrow is going to be better or what you're working for and everything? When he's talking about like, well, everybody just needs to work harder and stuff like that. 
cool, but there's not the opportunity for anybody right now. So like, what are yeah. you, how, how are people supposed to have op- an opportunity to better their lives or do any of that when you're actually part of the problem? It was a, it was a very sterile look at the optimistic idea of what USA proposes as the pursuit of happiness. It felt like a very, it's like, it's like, I just walked into a government building. They gave me a pamphlet on like, this is what America is. Like, blah. And we're like, thanks, government. Like, it's just a, it's a, it was a very silly, very, very surface, very simple, unrefined, unrealistic version of what the class system looks like in America. Coming from somebody who is insanely rich. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I have nothing more to say about this movie. It was, um, I didn't take very many notes on it at all. I think that's fair. And we're back from Annie 2014 and 1982. What a mess. Okay. We loved it. (laughs) Eric, who was the first one for Annie 1982? Uh, I don't know. Rich Gays. <laughs> Maybe I don't know. They had Bernadette and Tim doing the whatever shuffle with um the Easy Street uh, Shuffle. Kara Burnett, yeah. So I'm like, well, and then it's like this conversation about like, what, well, whatever. We got into it, yes. So I'm gonna say Rich Gaze, wealthy gaze. That's who it's for. Alex, who do you think it was for? Bolsheviks. <laughs> <laughs> You know what? They didn't get their fair shot here in this story. You're right. I know. <laughs> we didn't. Oh my god, we didn't even talk about the 2014 um, Russian woman. Oh my god. Oh right, oh. the clerk. Oh my god. Um, that? I'm gonna say that this film was for Martin Scorsese <laughs> and Steven Spielberg and all those people that don't want streaming films to make it into the Oscars or anything because they want (laughs) Hollywood to exist like it did in the let's go to the movies thing. Yeah. We love a good self-referential moment. Love to see myself in film. I'm sure they feel super seen. Love. great. Love to see it. We collectively as a whole love to see it. (laughs) Did you like it, Eric? Um, uh, yeah. Okay. I did like it. Um, I thought it was cool. The messaging was odd. Um, the songs were great. The musical was great. The staging was great. The choreography was great. I loved who they cast for the most part. I mean, sans racism. Yeah, I enjoyed it. You know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna give it six, six, seven. <laughs> I don't know a seven out of Adam? what I'm unsure, but I'm gonna say a seven. Okay, <laughs> Alex, <laughs> did you like it? I did. I cried at the end of it. Oh my god, I did too. I got so emotional. <laughs> I would give it like Is it a like it, love it, or gotta have it? I have sold the DVD and then I had to re-rent it on Amazon. So I would probably say <laughs> love it, not gotta have it. Ooh. <laughs> but I paid three ninety nine for the HD version, so I still like it. I yeah, yeah. I, I love it. I don't. I don't gotta have it. I love it mostly because of like the Easy Street performance and stuff like that. Got so good, and like the oh, dancing, yeah. the dancing, like the the songs are truly like the best part of this whole thing. Okay, uh, remake. 
Eric, was it new and interesting or the same progressive regressive? Give me give me your take. Okay. I will say it was new, but it wasn't interesting. It was new in concept, new in its we're in twenty fourteen now. It's a cell phone instead of oil and what you know what I mean? So new. Uh interesting it was not because it still had that same sentiment about it that was just like, what? But it still it was like more of a convoluted version of that sentiment. And it just was worse. What do you think, Alex? Yeah, it it tried to bank on like, you know, I guess in 2014. It's hard to think of that because like meme culture didn't exist in the same sort of way um, six years ago. So I was 16. I think I was pretty like in the like, total rejection of everything like that so i never like even if i had been invited i probably would have just said no to going and seeing that oh yeah uh, when it came out uh watching it now and i intentionally watched it that one and then the the 1980s one just to make sure i got like that in my brain uh yeah it was kind of disappointing i would definitely never rewatch it the other one i will still watch (laughs) This one, I think I got what I needed out of it. And it was just like, is it a movie? Is it a musical? It can't decide. And then like the only dance scene that's really big is like at the end. And it just doesn't make any sense. And it just had that whole thing of also like, oh, we have like 10 minutes. We need to wrap up the entire movie really quickly. And it was just weird. None of the characters made sense. It was just bad choices. It had like an identity crisis. Yeah. (laughs) I think. Really good. I agree with uh, with both of you that it was new, but it was not interesting. It was so boring. I was on my phone like quite a bit. I only like for the first Annie, I probably took six pages of notes. For this one, it was maybe like a page and a half. Yeah. And yeah, I don't know. It was just it. It felt really. I don't know if it was progressive or regressive because it didn't feel like it was saying anything. It feels like it just exists and and it's there. All right. Sure is. Yeah. Like, it exists now. In you, know, the... you know what? I'm going to say it's regressive because of some of those shitty jokes that it was making mm-hmm. and um, because of well, uh, because yeah. of the way that they were trying to, like, Hannigan's character was no longer about cyclical abuse and about finding your own morality and all this other stuff. It was more about just the world owes me because I was supposed to be a star and then I'm not a star and oh wait but you like me so I guess I'm okay like it was just lacking so much of the nuance that made the first one like I'll watch the first one again this one I've no (laughs) no yeah not at all um who was it for Eric it was for bad pop music in 20, 2000 or 2009. It was for bad pop music of 2009. Ooh, good. Who do you think it was for, Alex? Uh, people who miss singular. Oh, the... <laughs> the cell network. <laughs> um, people that thought, man, 2006 technology never got... Those phones were so weird looking. They were. They looked like the little like safety phone that has that you'd get that have would have like two <gasps> yes. buttons, like home and police. Was it the cricket? The cricket with the cricket phone? Yeah, like that kind of thing. So yeah. this is like I don't know. It also just like like Tumblr. It felt like that kind of era. Like like 
early 2010 Tumblr personified in a lot of the kind of like (laughs) trying to adapt something to be more modernistic and inclusive, but then fails at it horribly because they realize that the original script is based in, you know, not any of that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's true. I love that. Um, (laughs) uh, I'm going to say that it is for, People that, you know, people that like watch like the Disney Channel or Hallmark Channel or Lifetime just just because they want the happy endings on all of the things and it doesn't matter what kind of substance it is. Yeah. The Tumblr version of that. (laughs) Yeah. Like the, what is that? Was it called Happy Ending? The Avril Lavigne song? All this time you were pretending so much for my happy ending. Uh, whatever. What? Yes. Yeah. Yes. That's Avril yes. Lavigne, right? Do we know? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's this movie. <laughs> that song is this movie. I mean, this movie would have been better if it had, if Avril Lavigne just rewrote all of the songs. Honestly, yeah. Yeah. Cast, cast, cast them. <laughs> Give Rihanna um, a bigger part. What the fuck? She was great. Fucking go watch Battleship again and tell me she could not do great in this. <laughs> Come on, y'all. She would have been so good. Fuck off. I to go watch that. Anyways, um, yeah. Did you like it, Eric? Um, did I enjoy it? Yes. Did I like it? No. I enjoyed my time because of how silly it was. It's not a good movie. I didn't like it, but I did it. Did enjoy my time. Yes. What about did you, you, Alex? Did you like it? Yeah, I guess for that for that one time, yes, I I, I enjoyed it enough to get through it. Okay, Jess, uh, what do you think? I did not like it, and no. I will never watch it again. And um, yeah, nope, nope, it was rough. <laughs> it was rough for yeah. me. <laughs> um, thank you for joining us, Alex. Yeah, yeah thank fun. you for being here, Alex. Fun. I'm so happy that you finally got to do it. We're finally yeah. getting to get we're finally getting together in quarantine. Hell yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, that's it, I guess. Thank you so much. Again, you can write into us at nostalgiapodcast at gmail.com. Special thanks to David Tercero for tech support, Danny Barkley for editing our podcast. Alex, uh, check him out at uh Lava Socks. He runs a uh lovely, lovely music label that uh both of our bands are on. Um, and is in like the best band in the world sarcasm um, we'll link them in show notes and uh, thank you Eric thank you Jess thank you Alex thank you everybody this was great thank and remember you. stay cute and stay critical mm-hmm.